Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a deep dive into an obscure topic from history, and I tell y'all about what I find. I am your host, Kelvin. I use he, him pronouns, and joining me again today is my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-host. Say hi. Hey, I'm Ryan. Uh, use he, him pronouns. Welcome back. And Today, we will be discussing uh it's going to be another episode where we just talk about one person for the most part and this will be fun because this person he is one of the most famous and popular figures in all of american history that's for sure and some would argue he tops several lists as far as the best or most popular blank or best blank and most badass blank, you know. So with all of that information, uh, who would you guess we will be discussing? If we're going just public knowledge here, I'd I have to guess like George Washington or something like that. Okay, you're close that it is a president. More. Oh, all right. What's a... More. Not, more oh Lincoln, Abraham, Mr. Lincoln. No, third time. Ah. Third guess is the best. Third guess is the best. All right, the best president by public consensus. Usually those two. So who would be another guy up there? I use the word badass as so. a. Oh, like Roosevelt, like Teddy Roosevelt. Yes, sir. There we go. And see what I said. That, but what did I say? That third guess is the best. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we will be discussing uh, some of the more obscure incidents from Theodore Roosevelt's life, both during his presidency and then his very exciting uh, retirement. So... Oh, I don't know that I've heard much about that. Yeah, he was pretty young whenever he retired as far as presidents go. So he had a lot of time afterwards and a lot of energy. So if you're ready, let's dive down the rabbit hole. now before our people can be thinking freely. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will, day in and day out, make fewer mistakes in governing themselves than any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern them. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Our opponents, they lip loyal to this doctrine, but they show their real beliefs by the way in which they champion every device to make the nominal rule of the people a sham. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead or else the fight would not be made at all. All right. 
So, Theodore Roosevelt, he often went by TR. He actually did not like the nickname Teddy very much. But uh, he was, for those who don't know, our 26th president of the United States. He served from 1901 to 1909. He has the distinction of being the youngest president ever upon entering office because he was just shy of 43 years old whenever uh, William McKinley was assassinated and Theodore Roosevelt was his vice president. So that's how he got into office, which we have discussed on a previous episode. Go back and listen. But... uh, TR, he's, you know, a progressive Republican, trust buster, conservationist, and a very aggressive foreign policy, as well as a very large personality. He's very bombastic, I guess you could say. He was the man responsible for the Panama Canal. He was the first president to win the Nobel Peace Prize, the National Park Systems, mostly because of his work. So a very larger-than-life guy. So we're going to discuss, like I said, a couple of the stranger stories that occurred both during his presidency and then in his retirement. So from his presidency, the first kind of story that we will discuss or fact about him is that Theodore Roosevelt was a real man's man, real macho. He lived a life philosophy that he described as, quote, the strenuous life. Basically, it was if you work hard and struggle in everything you do in order to achieve success, then this str- struggle would act as like a purifying fire that make you stronger and more capable, you know. If it doesn't kill you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he applied this to every aspect of his life, um, including his physicality, embracing his masculine energies. So he formulated this beginning as a young kid because he was born 1858 in to a wealthier family in New York City. And uh, he was a very sickly Victorian child, basically. Um, He had severe asthma attacks that kept him from playing with other children. But uh, there was some incident, I don't remember, but he saw something or read a book or something happened where he basically decided that, you know what, you know, have you considered just not having asthma? And so he he decided that he would exercise and worked out his body until he basically grew out of having asthma attacks um, and became... Definitely it worked. Yeah, it, it worked. And then he's like, okay, that worked, so I'm just going to keep doing that the rest of my life. So uh, another time, he moved to the Dakota Territory and became a cowboy for a few years um, as a coping measure mechanism to deal with the deaths of his mother and his wife on the same day uh which you know pretty traumatic 
But uh, very much so. He went west and became a cowboy, worked on a ranch, was kind of like a sheriff's deputy there for a bit, just living the life up in the Dakotas. Oh, yeah. And then he would famously go on and volunteer himself to serve in the Rough Riders down in Cuba at in the Spanish-American War. And so he was really much a believer that uh, this masculine energy, you know, is a positive thing in his life. One habit that he picked up from his strenuous lifestyle was that he enjoyed the sport of boxing very much. Um, are you a fan of boxing? Uh, typically, not so much. I mean, I, I think I can kind of get behind like the pro wrestling that you know is fake just because it's a show, it's all an act, but I just don't get a kick out of watching people beat the shit out of each other. Yeah, I, I'm probably more of the same way. I, I do like watching pro wrestling, but... Um, yeah, I don't watch MMA or any of that stuff, really. Yeah, I can respect, like, how much work those people put themselves through, but also just to get, like, like, I heard Muhammad Ali not too long ago, somebody, like, there was a doctor that was like, yeah, I think he probably took about a quarter million punches to the head Oof. by the time he was done. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't know how good that is for a person. Not good at all. But... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he... Theodore, he was very much a fan, so much so that uh, he boxed very regularly. And uh, even as governor of New York, uh, he would bring people into his governor's office and box with them for fun. Um, He would even hired a professional to come train with him and... uh, That got him into trouble because he would be training in his governor's office at the state capitol. And uh, (laughs) he was caught by the state comptroller trying to use government funds to purchase boxing equipment for the office, like a boxing mat and just to keep it there and... uh, he tried to use state money to do that, and yeah, that didn't go over very well. But uh, yeah, he boxed while he was governor, and uh, apparently this was a hit with everybody. He even continued this practice whenever he became president and would regularly invite members of the military to go for a boxing round against the commander-in-chief. So... I, I yeah I, I I find that very much intimidating to be like hello Mr. President nice to meet you would you like to punch me in the face you know yeah and also like I want to know the stats of how many of those he quote won <laughs> because I want to know the one guy that was like all right I'm actually gonna beat the president yeah and it's like oh that, I don't think you do that I don't think you walk into the White House. Yeah. Win. Yeah. What's Theodore's record? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, we we do know about one bout outcome in particular. Um, and like it said, Theodore he was pretty young whenever he went into the Oval Office. Forty two is whenever he started, but he was president for eight years, and so you know 
it's a hard, tough job. You've seen the photos of whenever they first enter office versus when they leave and their hair is well, gone. The six months adds, yeah, the first six months adds 10 years. Yeah, it's... Or takes 10 years off your life. <laughs> it's a very hard job, to say the least. Um, so mm-hmm. In one match in 1908, so at the tail end of the presidency... Uh, Theodore was in one of these bouts against a young officer, and in the bout, the soldier hit Roosevelt in the face with a left hook, and the injury actually ended up basically permanently blinding Roosevelt in his left eye. Oh. Um, Which, you know... It's like, how does that make you feel? <laughs> I, yeah, how, how did that guy spend the rest of the day? Like, yeah, uh, I, I permanently disabled the president, you know. But at the same time, with how into it Roosevelt was, he was probably like, oh, good match, good match, it's okay. What a good job, sir. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so, uh, of course, this being not something you want to advertise to the world, you know, uh, only a handful of Roosevelt's closest friends even knew about this injury for years until Roosevelt wrote about it in his autobiography. And because he lost the vision in his eye, it was at that point he decided, you know what? I'm starting to get old. It's probably best that I stop boxing and wrestling. You know, it's probably not the healthiest thing in the world anymore. I'm going to get hurt. Uh, but he decided that he was, you want to know what is fine, uh, jujitsu and judo. So he started doing that as his hobbies. And he was actually one of the first Americans to get a brown belt in judo, which I'm not really sure how high that is, but it's something, you know. Hey, I mean, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's the about the time the president went blind because they were boxing in the White House. Another story from Roosevelt's presidency. This one is a little less directly related to him, but he does play a major role in the development of what is about to happen. So, um... In 1905, Theodore Roosevelt is often credited with basically inventing the game, the modern game of collegiate American football, which uh, I'm a fan. I'm sure you're a fan of football as we know it today, yes? Oh, in general, yes. Yes, we've been to many games. Oh, Um, yeah. Uh, American or gridiron football, I, whatever you call it, football. Uh, the f- it's been around since the first collegiate game with Rutgers and Princeton in 1869. But the rules back then were dramatically different from what they are currently. The earliest forms, you know, they, they were basically playing like soccer and what we'd understand is like rugby. Of course, they didn't have any of the safety equipment or any of that. You know, it just a dramatically different sport from what we would now recognize as football. Um, Like even for the first 
10 years of this war, you had to kick the ball in order to move it. And then in 1875, they were saying, okay, you can carry it, but you can't pass it. You, you can't, you know, it's very different. Well, slowly the scoring systems and the rules were starting to change and Theodore Roosevelt being this macho macho guy liked seeing teams of players go out and beat the shit out of each other on a football field as we all do. It very much fit in with the masculine ideology that he liked. Yeah, it sounds like it. But with the rules being so dramatically different and there not being really any safety equipment, um, the sport was very incredibly violent, even compared to, especially compared to the modern game. Uh, It was not an uncommon strategy to just literally beat the shit out of a guy to get him to drop the ball. Um, so eye gouging, choking, kicking, and punching were all par for the course. With the thought being, well, if we just injure all of their players, then they'll have no one to stop us from scoring. Yeah, and people still thought that they would do this as a pastime. Mm-hmm. Yep, very much so. Well, like even a a famous maneuver from this time period was known as the flying wedge formation, which basically all of the players on the offense would bunch together into like a like a triangle, like think of like a formation of bowling pins and have the ball in the center of that and just run down to the other end of the field at full speed, just Because just run over anybody in your path and just go and you'll get it down Mm. there. Eventually you might've, you know, trampled over three guys, but that's fine. Well, yeah, it's, it's how, it's how the game is played. If you don't like it, don't play. Well, these injuries would contribute to a growing number of deaths in the sport. Um, between 1890 and 1905, over 300 players had been killed playing college football. Wait, I'm sorry. You said 300 with, like, two zeros. Yes. 300 players in like 15 years. A handful. No. It, it like, was very much regular to have, like, about a dozen or so kids die each season. If that's the cost of doing business. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was very, very rough. And yeah, like 300, shocking number. Um, These are kids. Remember, they are 18, 19-year-olds for the most part, right? Um, Yeah, so colleges, parents... People were not happy with this. And so a lot of schools were canceling like certain rivalry games because they knew that those were going to be especially dangerous for their players. And some schools were even just canceling their football programs 
as a whole because it just wasn't worth that many kids dying in their opinion. Well, in 1905, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's, one of his sons, Theodore Jr., was a freshman on the Harvard football team. And as the child of a famous person, uh, it puts a target on your back in the game. And uh, the other team decides, hey, let's beat the shit out of the president's kid because he's on the other team. Seems like a great idea. And uh, yeah, Theodore Jr., he's basically out for the rest of the season. He's so he's injured so bad. He has like a cut over his eye. He has to get carried off the field. Yeah. It's it's very bad. And so now Theodore Roosevelt Sr., the president, is uh concerned about his son's health playing the game. Cause he's like been a fan, but now that his own kid's getting hurt, now he's like, oh maybe uh maybe there is this game might be a little bit too dangerous. So one week after the game his son was injured in, he hosted a football summit at the White House with officials from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, the big football schools at the time. And he basically sat them down and was like, yo, I don't care what you do, but you need to change up some of the rules in order to protect these kids or do something. because." This is getting out of hand. And um, he ended up hosting like a couple of these meetings and the coordinating, getting people to talk to each other. And through these efforts, basically is how the NCAA, which coordinates all the rules for all the sports and between the different schools now, mm-hmm. uh, that's basically how it it was created in 1906 as the result of all these football summits. And some of the rules that they adopted was banning these so-called mass formations like the flying wedge, or they added an extra down. So originally they only had three downs per possession. Now they had four downs um, to give them more time to do things. And then they also legalized the forward pass. So, which is now like the most iconic part of the game, you know, as a quarterback throwing a Hail Mary. So, oh, yeah, I would say so. But up until, I'm sorry. But yeah, up until like 1906, that was not allowed. This reminds me a lot of the story that I heard about why there's expiration dates on milk. Have you heard the origin of that? I don't guess so, no. So, I mean, the whole background of, like, the meatpacking industry and, like, food safety and stuff, you know, there's the jungle, there's all that history, Mm -hmm. you know, to do with political unrest and whatever. But specifically the reason that there are expiration dates on milk is that... um, Notorious, I guess, gangster, mobster, whatever you want to call him, uh, Al Capone. Uh huh. One of his relatives got seriously ill. I don't know if they died or what happened, but they got sick from drinking expired milk. And so, of course, being a mob boss, being the head of a city, a 
organization, whatever, you know, however much power he had, eventually got it to where they actually have expiration dates on milk now because of that. <laughs> it's like, one of those you, you, yeah, you poison the wrong person or you, you know, you, some dumb kids attack the wrong kid in a, in a sport and all of a sudden the wrong person got in charge and took over and made it safer. Yeah. I mean, but it's like the same kind of story. Just one person got sick, but it was the, you know, the son or the daughter or the relative and nope, I'm not having that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel there. Yeah. not it. And it would have been, you know, right at about the same time too. I mean, a couple of decades later, but, yeah. yeah. No, I didn't know Al Capone. Uh, famous. He's the reason. He, you can thank him. He's a humanitarian, honestly. Yeah. Like, give him a Nobel Prize. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just the entire story is kind of funny. It's like, I mean, that was kind of the whole deal. I mean, to get off on a tangent, that was mm. kind of the whole deal behind mob bosses and things is you would get the people of the city behind you. You would do things, good things for the little guys, and then all of your illegal, big stuff, whatever, was happening to all the banks, to the, oh, well, you know, I'm mm-hmm. a guy working in a meat market. I don't care what happens to those, you know, corner office people. Like, go ahead, sure, but if I get a kickback, if if my milk is safe now, then sure, go for it. Yeah. And like, that's a lot of how those guys were able to operate. So, complete side sidebar. I mean, but, yeah, it's strange how the world works sometimes. For the last story that we're going to do from his presidency, um, I think is it's interesting, but it kind of shows a different side of Roosevelt. Like we've been focusing on like, oh, I'm a macho, macho guy and I get things done my way. Well, it's like that, but uh, I think this paints him more to be kind of a very petty person. Um, oh, you'll, you'll see why. Oh, fun. So in 1903, uh, he, a French artist, Theod- Theobald Chartain, was commissioned to paint the official portrait of the presidency to hang in the White House. You know, uh, the Obamas were just in the news for having their portrait, you know, unveiled, right? Yes, I remember seeing that. Um, so th- it's the same kind of portrait. It was They had hired this famous artist at the time, and uh, he was famous for doing other portraits and stuff. And they chose him because the previous year they had asked this guy to... Uh, Chartain to paint a portrait of Theodore's wife, Edith. And they loved it so much that they chose him again to paint Theodore's. Um, let me show you a let me show you what hers looked like. I can already have a few guesses as to what went wrong or what what the petty part of it is, but I'll hold my, my comments to the end. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Wow, that's very well done. So, yeah, I have this very nice portrait of her, very lifelike, flattering, shows a lot of emotion, whatever. So they're like, oh, yes, you did such a great job. Please paint me now. And uh, 
Well, apparently their working relationship was not as good as Edith and Theodore. Chartain, I mean, as Edith had. Chartain had a very hard time getting the president to sit still for prolonged periods of time in order to paint him properly. Oh my god, it sounds like a puppy or something where it's like, all right, we'll give him treats to sit down and he he won't move if you do this. (laughs) And and, uh, yeah, and then Roosevelt, he did not like the fact that Chartain was attempting to capture some of the more private aspects of his personality in the portrait you know he's trying he's trying to make it to where like oh i'm a tough macho uber masculine man and chartain is maybe trying to paint more of like the domestic home life aspects of him and theodore did not like that at all well when the portrait was finished roosevelt hated it He did not like it at all. And he thought that it made him, quote, look like a mewling mewling cat, end quote. But not much you can do about it because it's the official White House portrait of you. And Mm -hmm. the painting actually went on tour in France, you know, as part of the the artist was from France. And so he gets to show off his artwork a little bit because it's not like we have the internet, you know. Uh, but so it was like off in France for a couple of months. But whenever it returned to the White House, uh, the first family decided to put it in like the upper floor hallway next to a closet, like as far out of the way as possible so that as few people as possible would see it. Oh, it's kind of funny, but also kind of sad that he's that fragile. And, uh... He can't have this scene. Yeah, it's... And the entire family made fun of Theodore for both the portrait of itself, but also they just thought that it was seriously funny that he did not like his painting, you know? Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're really holding out on me now with uh, no visual reference for this because I, I can have some pictures in my head. But it's... yeah, so uh, the thing is, is that in 19, there there is no visual reference for this painting because in 1909, right. whenever Theodore Roosevelt was leaving the White House, uh, he had the portrait removed from the wall and burned it on the White House lawn. Okay. All right. <laughs> so there, there. We have no idea what this photo looks like. There's no photographs of this painting. You know, it, it's yeah. Where's where's the where's the Frenchman that like got this photo of the the painting passed down generation to generation? Where's that person right now? What where's that like bombshell waiting to be posted? Yeah. Um, like as it's being toured around in France, they're like somebody caught a snapshot of it and like has hidden it for a hundred years or something. Yeah, it's that that would be amazing because then we can compare it to uh, his current. The actual they uh, went a few months later and got 
another artist, John Singer Sargent, to paint a portrait of him. And this is the one that we know of today as his official portrait. And I sent it to you. Yeah, I definitely feel like I've seen that before or a very similar thing. Mm -hmm. Very similar one. So it's much more, you know, like proud masculine pose. (laughs) And yeah, uh, very simple when compared to the previous one, which lets you know that it didn't take as much time to paint and uh, well, he couldn't sit still, you know. We gotta get those quick brushstrokes. I mean, on one level, yeah, you're the president of the United States. You're a busy guy, but on um, you know, it kind of feels a lot like, oh, I gotta, I gotta be doing this, this, and that, and that. And, um, going into that, Theodore Roosevelt is he probably had photographic memory. Um. And he was a speed reader. It it would not be uncommon for him to wake up in the morning, start reading a book, and finish it before having breakfast. And then he would be able to quote specific passages from said book five, ten years later in conversation. I I hate people like that. I cannot tell you what I read on an article this morning. Like, come on. Yeah. It's not fair. It's, yeah, it is kind of, he probably read tens of thousands of books in his lifetime. And uh, he actually wrote several books, too. That was part of Mm -hmm. what he did. But, yeah, that, those are the stories from Theodore's presidency. But he was 50 years old whenever he left public life, right? And so... Um, his post-presidency, he was also very busy and got up to certain shenanigans. Of course, probably the most famous shenanigan that he got up to in his post-presidency was that he tried to run for president a third time in 1912 with Mm -hmm. the third party, the progressive Bull Moose Party, which, of course, is an exciting story because he survived an assassination attempt um he was going out to give a speech got shot in the chest but what saved him was his speech was so long and he wrote it out on paper and he had it folded up and tucked into his chest pocket and the combination of the papers from his speech and his glasses case kept the slowed the bullet down enough to where even though it did go into his chest he survived, and he actually went out and can, continued to go on and give the speech with a bullet in his chest. And he like he starts off the speech as like, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you know this, I've just been shot, but it takes more than a bullet to bring down a bull moose. And of course, oh my god, that's amazing! Um, so yeah, and he went on to continue to give a speech until the doctors were basically like, dude, you're about to pass out from blood loss. We need to get you to a hospital, you know. But yeah, that's one of his post-retirement stories. Uh, But yeah, but even before that, he was getting up to some shenanigans. Hey, y'all, we're actually going to stop the episode here. Uh, This is going to be a two-parter because... There's a lot of stuff in this guy's life going on. So 
as always, uh, like to thank y'all for listening. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us and make sure to join in for the next episode, part two of Theodore Roosevelt's. Our music is by Mountaineer. You can find their stuff and more on upbeat.io. And I left some notes down in the show notes for anyone that wants to dive deeper into any of these subjects that we bring up. As always, we want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye. See you for part two. Woo!